Section 8 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. Chapter 5 The Contributing Cause of the Accident. Part 1. The decision to launch the Challenger was flawed. Those who made that decision were unaware of the recent history of problems concerning the O-rings and the joint, and were unaware of the initial written recommendation of the contractor advising against the launch at temperatures below 53 degrees Fahrenheit, and of the continuing opposition of the engineers at Thiokol after the management reversed its position. They did not have a clear understanding of Rockwell's concern that it was not safe to launch because of ice on the pad. If the decision-makers had known all of the facts, it is highly unlikely that they would have decided to launch 51L on January 28, 1986. Flaws in the Decision-Making Process in addition to analyzing all available evidence concerning the material causes of the accident on January 28th, the Commission examined the chain of decisions that culminated in approval of the launch. It concluded that the decision-making process was flawed in several ways. The actual events that produced the information upon which the approval of the launch was based are recounted and appraised in the sections of this chapter. The discussion that follows relies heavily on excerpts from the testimony of those involved in the management judgments that led to the launch of the Challenger under conditions described. That testimony reveals failures in communication that resulted in a decision to launch 51L based on incomplete and sometimes misleading information, a conflict between engineering data and management judgments, and a NASA management structure that permitted internal flight safety problems to bypass key shuttle managers. The Shuttle Flight Readiness Review is a carefully planned, step-by-step -step activity established by NASA Program Directive SPOPD710.5A, designed to certify the readiness of all components of the Space Shuttle Assembly. The process is focused upon the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review, held approximately two weeks before a launch. The Level 1 Review is a conference chaired by the NASA Associate Administrator for Space Flight and supported by the NASA Chief Engineer, the Program Manager, the center directors and project managers from Johnson, Marshall, and Kennedy, along with senior contractor representatives. The formal portion of the process is initiated by directive from the Associate Administrator for Spaceflight. The directive outlines the schedule for the Level 1 Flight Readiness Review and for the steps that precede it. The process begins at Level 4 with the contractors formally certifying, in writing, the flight readiness of the elements for which they are responsible. Certification is made to the appropriate Level 3 NASA project managers at Johnson and Marshall, 
Additionally, at Marshall, the review is followed by a presentation directly to the center director. At Kennedy, the Level 3 review, chaired by the center director, verifies the readiness of the launch support elements. The next step in the process is the certification of flight readiness to the Level 2 program manager at Johnson. In this review, each space shuttle program element endorses that it has satisfactorily completed the manufacture, assembly, test, and checkout of the pertinent element, including the contractor's certification that design and performance are up to standard. The flight readiness review process culminates in the Level 1 review. In the initial notice of the review, the Level 1 directive establishes a mission management team for the particular mission. The team assumes responsibility for each shuttle's readiness for a period commencing 48 hours before launch and continuing through post-landing crew egress and the safing of the orbiter. On call throughout the entire period, the mission management team supports the Associate Administrator for Spaceflight and the Program Manager. A structured mission management team meeting, called by Level 1, is held 24 hours or one day prior to each scheduled launch. Its agenda includes closeout of any open work, a closeout of any flight readiness review action items, a discussion of new or continuing anomalies, and an updated briefing on anticipated weather conditions at the launch site and at the abort landing sites in different parts of the world. It is standard practice of Level 1 and 2 officials to encourage the reporting of new problems or concerns that might develop in the interval between the flight readiness review and the Level 1 meeting, and between the Level 1 and the launch. In a procedural sense, the process described was followed in the case of Flight 51L. However, in the launch preparation for 51L, relevant concerns of Level 3 NASA personnel and element contractors were not in the following crucial areas adequately communicated to the NASA Level 1 and 2 management responsible for the launch. The objections to launch voiced by Morton Thiokol engineers about the detrimental effect of cold temperatures on the performance of the solid rocket motor joint seal, the degree of concern of Thiokol and Marshall about the erosion of the joint seals in prior shuttle flights, notably 51C, January 1985, and 51B, April 1985. On December 13, 1985, the Associate Administrator for Spaceflight, Jesse Moore, sent out a message distributed among NASA headquarters, NASA field centers, and U.S. Air Force units that scheduled the flight readiness review for January 15, 1986, and prescribed the dates for the other steps in the standard procedure. The message was followed by directives from James A. Jean Thomas, Deputy Director of Launch and Landing Operations at Kennedy, on January 2, 1986, by the National Space Transportation System Program Manager Arnold Aldrich on January 3rd, by William R. Lucas, the Marshall Center Director, on January 7th, and by the Marshall Shuttle Projects Office on January 8th. 
Each of these implementing directives prescribed for Level 3 the preparatory steps for the Flight Readiness Review. The Flight Readiness Review was held as scheduled on January 15th. On the following day, Aldrich issued the schedule for the combined Level 1 Mission Management Team meetings. He also announced plans for the mission management team meetings continuing throughout the mission and included the schedule for the Level 1 review. On January 23rd, Moore issued a directive stating that the flight readiness review had been conducted on the 15th and that 51L was ready to fly, pending closeout of open work, satisfactory countdown, and completion of remaining flight readiness review action items which were to be closed out during the Level 1 meeting. No problems with the solid rocket booster were identified. Since December 1982, the O-rings had been designated a Criticality 1 feature of the solid rocket booster design, a term denoting a failure point without backup that could cause a loss of life or vehicle if the component fails. In July 1985, after a nozzle joint on STS-51B showed erosion of a secondary O-ring, indicating that the primary seal failed, a launch constraint was placed on Flight 51F and subsequent launches. These constraints had been imposed and regularly waived by the Solid Rocket Booster Project Manager at Marshall, Lawrence B. Malloy. Neither the launch constraint the reason for it, or the six consecutive waivers prior to 51L, were known to Moore, Level 1, or Aldrich, Level 2, or Thomas, at the time of the flight readiness review process for 51L. It should be noted that there were other and independent paths of system reporting that were designed to bring forward information about the solid rocket booster joint anomalies, one path was the task force of Thiokol engineers and Marshall engineers, who had been conducting subscale pressure tests at Wasatch during 1985, a source of documented rising concern and frustration on the part of some of the Thiokol participants and a few of the Marshall participants. But Level 2 was not in the line of reporting for this activity. Another path was the examination at each flight readiness review of the evidence of earlier flight anomalies. For 51L, the data presented in this latter path, while it reached levels 1 and 2, never referred to either test anomalies or flight anomalies with O-rings. In any event, no mention of the O-ring problems in the solid rocket booster joint appeared in the certification of flight readiness, signed for Thiokol on January 9, 1986, by Joseph Kilminster, for the solid rocket booster set designated BI-026. Similarly, no mention appeared in the certification endorsement signed on January 15, 1986, by Kilminster and by Malloy. No mention appears in several inches of paper comprising the entire chain of readiness reviews for 51L. In the 51L readiness reviews, it appears that neither Thiokol management nor the Marshall Level 3 project managers believed that the O-ring blow-by and erosion risk was critical. 
The testimony and contemporary correspondence show that Level 3 believed there was ample margin to fly with O-ring erosion, provided the leak check was performed at 200 pounds per square inch. Following the January 15th flight readiness review, each element of the shuttle was certified as flight ready. The Level 1 Mission Management Team meeting took place as scheduled at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, January 25th. No technical issues appeared at this meeting or in the documentation, and all flight readiness review actions were reported closed out. Mr. Malloy testified as follows regarding the flight readiness review record about O-ring concerns. Chairman Rogers, why wasn't that a cause for concern on the part of the whole NASA organization? Mr. Malloy, it was cause for concern, sir. Chairman Rogers, who did you tell about this? Mr. Malloy, everyone, sir. Chairman Rogers, and they all knew about it at the time of 51L. Mr. Malloy, yes, sir, you will find in the flight readiness review record that went all the way to the level one review. It is disturbing to the Commission that, contrary to the testimony of the Solid Rocket Booster Project Manager, the seriousness of concern was not conveyed in Flight Readiness Review to Level 1, and the 51L Readiness Review was silent. The only remaining issue facing the Mission Management Team at the Level 1 Review was the approaching cold front, with forecasts of rain showers and temperatures in the mid-60s, there had also been heavy rain since 51L had been rolled out to the launch pad, approximately 7 inches, compared with the 2.5 inches that would have been normal for that season and length of exposure, 35 days. At 12.36 p.m. on the 27th, the mission management team scrubbed the launch for that day due to high crosswinds at the launch site. In the accompanying discussion that ran for about half an hour, all appropriate personnel were polled as to the feasibility of a launch within 24 hours. Participants were requested to identify any constraints. This meeting, aimed at launch at 9.38 a.m. on January 28th, produced no constraints or concerns about the performance of the solid rocket boosters. At 2 o'clock p.m. on the 27th, the mission management team met again. At that time, the weather was expected to clear, but it appeared that temperatures would be in the low 20s for about 11 hours. Issues were raised with regard to the cold weather effects on the launch facility, including the water drains, the eyewash and shower water, fire suppression system, and overpressure water trays. It was decided to activate heaters in the orbiter, but no concerns were expressed about the O-rings in the solid rocket boosters. The decision was to proceed with the countdown and with fueling, but all members of the team were asked to review the situation and call if any problems arose. At approximately 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, at Thiokol's Wasatch plant, Robert Ebeling, after learning of the predicted low temperature for the launch, convened a meeting with Roger Borgeli and with other Thiokol engineers. A brief chronology of the subsequent chain of events begins on page 104. 
Ebeling was concerned about predicted cold temperatures at Kennedy Space Center. In a post-accident interview, Mr. Ebeling recalled the substance of that meeting. The meeting lasted one hour, but the conclusion of that meeting was engineering, especially Arnie, Roger Boisjoli, Brian Russell, myself, Jerry Burns, they come to mind, were very adamant about their concerns on this lower temperature, because we were way below our database and we were way below what we were qualified for. Later in the afternoon of the same day, Alan MacDonald, Thiokol's liaison for the Solid Rocket Booster Project at Kennedy Space Center, received a telephone call from Ebeling, expressing concern about the performance of the solid rocket booster field joints at low temperatures. During testimony before the Commission on February 28th, MacDonald recounted that conversation. Mr. MacDonald, well, I had first become aware of the concern of the low temperatures that were projected for the Cape. It was late in the afternoon of the 27th. I was at Carver Kennedy's house. He is a vice president of, as I mentioned, our Space Operations Center at the Cape, and supports the stacking of solid rocket motors, SRMs. And I had a call from Bob Ebeling. He is the manager of our ignition system and final assembly, and he worked for me as program manager at Thiokol in Utah. And he called me and said that they had just received some word earlier that the weatherman was projecting temperatures as low as 18 degrees Fahrenheit sometime in the early morning hours of the 28th, and that they had had some meetings with some of the engineering people and had some concerns about the O-rings getting to those kind of temperatures. And he wanted to make me aware of that, and also wanted to get some more updated and better information on what the actual temperature was going to be depicted, so that they could make some calculations on what they expected the real temperature the O-rings may see. I told him that I would get that temperature data for him and call him back. Carver Kennedy then, when I hung up, called the Launch Operations Center to get the predicted temperatures from Pad B, as well as what the temperature history had been during the day up until that time. He obtained those temperatures from the Launch Operations Center, and they basically said that they felt it was going to get near freezing or freezing before midnight. It would get as low as 22 degrees as a minimum in the early morning hours, probably around 6 o'clock, and that they were predicting a temperature of about 26 degrees at the intended time, about 9.38 the next morning. I took that data and called back to the plant and sent it to Bob Ebeling and relayed that to him and told him he ought to use this temperature data for his predictions. But I thought this was very serious, and to make sure that he had the vice president engineering involved in this and all of his people, that I wanted them to put together some calculations and a presentation of material. Chairman Rogers. Who is the Vice President Engineering? Mr. MacDonald. Mr. Bob Lund is our Vice President Engineering at our Morton Thiokol facility in Utah. To make sure he was involved in this, and that this decision should be an engineering decision, not a program management decision, and I told him that I would like him to make sure they prepared some charts and were in a position to recommend the launch temperature and to have a rationale for supporting that launch temperature. I then hung up and I called Mr. Malloy. 
he was staying at the Holiday Inn in Merritt Island, and they couldn't reach him, and so I called Cecil Houston. Cecil Houston is the resident manager for the Marshall Space Flight Center office at KSC, Kennedy Space Center, and told him about our concerns with the low temperatures and the potential problem with the O-rings. And he said that he would set up a teleconference. He had a four-wire system next to his office. His office is right across from the VAB, Vehicle Assembly Building, in the trailer complex C over there, and he would set up a four-wire teleconference involving the engineering people at Marshall Space Flight Center at Huntsville, our people back at Thiokol in Utah, and that I should come down to his office and participate at Kennedy from there, and that he would get back to me and let me know when that time would be. Soon thereafter, Cecil Houston called Dr. Judson Lovingood, Deputy Shuttle Project Manager at Marshall Space Flight Center, to inform him of the concerns about the O-rings, and asked Lovingood to set up a teleconference with senior project management personnel, with George Hardy, Marshall's Deputy Director of Science and Engineering, and with Morton Thiokol personnel. Lovingood called Stanley Reinertz, shuttle project manager, a few minutes later, and informed him of the planned telecon. The first phase of the teleconference began at 5.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Participants included Reinertz, Lovingood, Hardy, and numerous people at Kennedy, Marshall, and Thiokol Wasatch. Alan MacDonald missed this phase. He did not arrive at Kennedy until after 8 p.m. Concerns for the effects of low temperature on the O-rings and the joint seal were presented by Morton Thiokol, along with an opinion that launch should be delayed. A recommendation was also made that Aldrich, program manager at Johnson, Level 2, be informed of these concerns. The following are excerpts from testimony before the Commission relating to the teleconference. Dr. Keel, you just indicated earlier that, based upon that teleconference, you thought there was a good possibility of delay— is that what Thiokol was recommending, then, was delay? Dr. Lovingood. That is the way I heard it, and they were talking about the 51C experience, and the fact that they had experienced the worst-case blow-by as far as the arc and the soot and so forth, and also they talked about the resiliency data that they had. So it appeared to me, and we didn't have all of the proper people there, that was another aspect of this, it appeared to me that we had better sit down and get the data so that we could understand exactly what they were talking about and assess that data. And that is why I suggested that we go ahead and have a telecon within the center so that we could review that. Dr. Keel. So as early as after that first afternoon conference at 545, it appeared that Thiokol was basically saying delay. Is that right? Dr. Lovingood. That is the way it came across to me. I don't know how other people perceived it, but that's the way it came across to me. Dr. Keel. Mr. Reinertz, how did you perceive it? Mr. Reinertz. I did not perceive it that way. I perceived that they were raising some questions and issues which required looking into by all the right parties, but I did not perceive it as a recommendation delay. Dr. Keel. Some prospects for delay? 
Mr. Reinerts. Yes, sir, that possibility is always there. Dr. Keel. Did you convey that to Mr. Malloy and Mr. Hardy before the 815 conference? Mr. Reinerts. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, we had a discussion. Mr. Malloy was just out of communication for about an hour, and then after that I got in contact with him, and we both had a short discussion, relating to the general nature of the concerns, with Dr. Lucas and Mr. Kingsbury at the motel, before we both departed for the telecon that we had set up out at the Cape. Dr. Keel. But based upon that, Mr. Lovingood, that impression, you thought it was a significant enough possibility that Mr. Aldrich should have been contacted? Dr. Lovingood. Yes. Dr. Keel. In addition, did you recommend that Mr. Lucas, who is Director of Marshall, of course, and Mr. Kingsbury, who is Mr. Hardy's boss, participate in the 815 conference? Dr. Lovingood. Yes, I did. Dr. Keel. And you recommended that to whom? Dr. Lovingood. I believe I said that over the net. I said that I thought we ought to have an inter-center meeting involving Dr. Lucas and Mr. Kingsbury, and then plan to go on up the line to Level 2 and Level 1. And then it was after we broke off that first telecon, I called Stan at the motel and told him that he ought to go ahead and alert Arnie to that possibility. Dr. Keel. And, Mr. Reinerts, you then visited the motel room of Mr. Lucas with Mr. Kingsbury, and also was Mr. Malloy with you then? Mr. Reinerts, yes, sir, he was. In the first couple of minutes, I believe I was there by myself, and then Mr. Malloy joined us. Dr. Keel, and did you discuss with them Mr. Lovingood's recommendation that the two of them, Lucas and Kingsbury, participate? Mr. Reinerts, no, sir, I don't recall discussing Mr. Lovingood's recommendations. I discussed with them the nature of the telecon, the nature of the concerns raised by Thiokol, and the plans to gather the proper technical support people at Marshall for examination of the data, and I believe that was the essence of the discussion. Chairman Rogers. But you didn't recommend that the information be given to Level 2 or Level 1? Mr. Reinerts, I don't recall that I raised that issue with Dr. Lucas. I told him what the plans were for proceeding. I don't recall, Mr. Chairman, making any statement regarding that. Mr. Hotz, Mr. Reinerts, are you telling us that you, in fact, are the person who made the decision not to escalate this to a level two item? Mr. Reinerts, that is correct, sir. At approximately 8.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Phase 2 of the teleconference commenced, the Thiokol charts and written data having arrived at Kennedy Space Center by Telefax. A table of teleconference participants is included with the chronology of events. The charts presented a history of the O-ring erosion and blow-by in the solid rocket booster joints of previous flights, presented the results of subscale testing at Thiokol, and the results of static tests of solid rocket motors. In the following testimony, Roger Borgioli, Alan MacDonald, and Larry Malloy expressed their recollections of this teleconference up to the point when an off-net caucus was required. Mr. Borgioli, 
I expressed deep concern about launching at low temperature. I presented chart 2-1 with emphasis. Now, 2-1, if you want to see it, I have it. But basically, that was the chart that summarized the primary concerns, and that was the chart that I pulled right out of the Washington presentation without changing one word of it, because it was still applicable, and it addresses the highest concern of the field joint in both the ignition transient condition and the steady state condition, and it really sets down the rationale for why we were continuing to fly. Basically, if erosion penetrates the primary O-ring seal, there is a higher probability of no secondary seal capability in the steady-state condition. And I had two sub-bullets under that, which stated bench testing showed O-ring not capable of maintaining contact with metal parts, gap opening rate to maximum operating pressure, I had another bullet which stated bench testing showed capability to maintain O-ring contact during initial phase, 0 to 170 milliseconds of transient. That was my comfort basis of continuing to fly under normal circumstances, normal being within the database we had. I emphasized when I presented that chart about the changing of the timing function of the O-ring as it attempted to seal, I was concerned that we may go from that first beginning region into that intermediate region, from 0 to 170 being the first region, and 170 to 330 being the intermediate region, where we didn't have a high probability of sealing or seating. I then presented chart 2-2 with added concerns related to the timing function, and basically on that chart, I started off talking about a lower temperature than current database results in changing the primary O-ring sealing timing function, and I discussed the SRM-15, Flight 51C, January 1985, observations, namely the 15A, left solid rocket motor, Flight 51C motor, had 80 degrees arc black grease between the O-rings, and make no mistake about it, when I say black, I mean black just like coal. It was jet black. And solid rocket motor 15B, right SRM, flight 51C, had a 110-degree arc of black grease between the O-rings. We would have low O-ring squeeze due to low temperature, which I calculated earlier in the day. We should have higher O-ring shore hardness. Now that would be harder, and what that material really is, it would be likened to trying to shove a brick into a crack versus a sponge. That is a good analogy for purposes of this discussion. I also mentioned that thicker grease, as a result of lower temperatures, would have a higher viscosity. It wouldn't be as slick and slippery as it would at room temperature, and so it would be a little bit more difficult to move across it. We would have higher O-ring pressure actuation time, in my opinion, and that is what I presented. These are the sum and substance of what I just presented. If action time increases, then the threshold of secondary seal pressurization capability is approached. That was my fear. If the threshold is reached, then secondary seal may not be capable of being pressurized, and that was the bottom line of everything that had been presented up to that point. Chairman Rogers, did anybody take issue with you? 
Mr. Boisjoli. Well, I am coming to that. I also showed a chart of the joint with an exaggerated cross-section to show the seal lifted off, which has been shown to everybody. I was asked, yes, at that point in time, I was asked to quantify my concerns, and I said I couldn't, I couldn't quantify it. I had no data to quantify it. But I did say I knew that it was away from goodness in the current database. Someone on the net commented that we had soot blow by on SRM-22, Flight 61A, October 1985, which was launched at 75 degrees. I don't remember who made the comment, but that is where the first comment came in about the disparity between my conclusion and the observed data, because SRM-22 had blow-by at essentially a room-temperature launch. I then said that SRM-15, Flight 51C, January 1985, had much more blow-by indication, and that it was indeed telling us that lower temperature was a factor. This was supported by inspection of flown hardware by myself. I was asked again for data to support my claim, and I said I have none other than what is being presented, and I had been trying to get resilience data, Arnie and I both, since last October, and that statement was mentioned on the net. Others in the room presented their charts, and the main telecon session concluded with Bob Lund, who is our vice president of engineering, presenting his conclusions and recommendations charts, which were based on our data input up to that point. Listeners on the telecon were not pleased with the conclusions and the recommendations. Chairman Rogers, what was the conclusion? Mr. Boisjoli, the conclusion was we should not fly outside of our database, which was 53 degrees. Those were the conclusions. And we were quite pleased because we knew in advance, having participated in the preparation, what the conclusions were, and we felt very comfortable with that. Mr. Atchison, who presented that conclusion? Mr. Boisjoli, Mr. Bob Lund, he had prepared those charts, he had input from other people, he had actually physically prepared the charts. It was about that time that Mr. Hardy from Marshall was asked what he thought about the MTI, or Morton Thiokol, recommendation, and he said he was appalled at the MTI decision. Mr. Hardy was also asked about launching, and he said no, not if the contractor recommended not launching. He would not go against the contractor and launch. There was a short discussion that ensued about temperature not being a discriminator between SRM-15, Flight 51C, and SRM-22, Flight 51A. And shortly after, I believe it was Mr. Kilminster asked if, excuse me, I'm getting confused here, Mr. Kilminster was asked by NASA if he would launch, and he said no because the engineering recommendation was not to launch. Then MTI management then asked for a five-minute caucus. I'm not sure exactly who asked for that, but it was asked in such a manner that I remember it was asked for, a five-minute caucus, which we put on the line on mute and went offline with the rest of the net. Chairman Rogers. Mr. Boisjoli, at the time that you made the, that Thiokol made the recommendation not to launch, 
Was that the unanimous recommendation, as far as you knew? Mr. Boisjoli, yes. I have to make something clear. I have been distressed by the things that have been appearing in the paper and things that have been said in general, and there was never one positive pro-launch statement ever made by anybody. There have been some feelings since then that folks have expressed that they would support the decision, but there was not one positive statement for launch ever made in that room. Mr. MacDonald's Testimony Mr. MacDonald I arrived at the Kennedy Space Center at about 8.15 p.m., and when I arrived there at the Kennedy Space Center, the others that had already arrived were Larry Malloy, who was there. He is the manager, the project manager for the SRB, the Solid Rocket Booster, for Marshall. Stan Reinertz was there, and he is the manager of the Shuttle Project Office. He is Larry Malloy's boss. Cecil Houston was there, the resident manager for Marshall, and Jack Buchanan was there. He happens to be our manager, Morton Thiokol's manager, of our Launch Support Services office at Kennedy. The telecon hadn't started yet. It came on the network shortly after I got there. Chairman Rogers. Was it essentially a telephone conference, or was there actually a network of pictures? Mr. MacDonald. It was a telephone conference but I will relay what I heard at the conference as best I can. The teleconference started, I guess, close to nine o'clock, and even though all the charts weren't there, we were told to begin, and that Morton Thiokol should take the lead and go through the charts that they had sent to both centers. The charts were presented by the engineering people from Thiokol, in fact by the people that had made those particular charts. Some of them were typed, some of them were handwritten, and they discussed their concerns with the low temperatures relative to the possible effects on the O-rings, primarily the timing function to seal the O-rings. They presented a history of some of the data that we had accumulated, both in static test and in flight tests, relative to temperatures and the performance of the O-rings, and reviewed the history of all our erosion studies of the O-rings in the field joints. Any blow-by of the primary O-ring with soot, or products of combustion or decomposition that we had noted, and the performance of the secondary O-rings. And there was an exchange amongst the technical people on that data as to what it meant. But the real exchange never really came until the conclusions and recommendations came in. At that point in time, our vice president, Mr. Bob Lund, presented those charts, and he presented the charts on the conclusions and recommendations. And the bottom line was that the engineering people would not recommend a launch below 53 degrees Fahrenheit. The basis for that recommendation was primarily our concern with the launch that had occurred about a year earlier, in January of 1985. I believe it was 51C. End of Section 8. Recording by Maria Casper.